Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. And today we're going to talk about the often touchy subject of race. Uh, with me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have three guests with us today. Vivian Halloran is a professor in the IU Department of Comparative Literature and co-organizer of a conference on the IU campus called Variations on Blackness. John Bowles is assistant professor of 20th century American art and African-American art in the Department of History of Art and the American Studies Program at IU. And Andrew Carl is here. He's a Ph.D. candidate in history at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And welcome to all of our panelists today. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for being here with us. And this is a, a big topic, big topic and an important topic. Mary Catherine, it's, we're going to learn a lot of, yep, a lot we of things are. today. And we're glad you're back, Bob. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so, so we're going we're gonna to learn a lot today. We're going to start now by I'm going to ask Vivian to sort of talk about the, the conference that's going on and the, the genesis of it and, and sort of put this uh, topic in perspective for us. Yeah. Well, the conference uh, really is the culmination of a year-long um, faculty workshop and graduate research seminar that uh, IU has been generous enough to sponsor through many many different um, research venues, among them the College of Arts and Sciences and Multidisciplinary Research uh, Ventures Fund. And um, What gave rise to the idea uh, was Matthew Guterl. He's a professor of American Studies and African American and African Diaspora Studies. Uh, noticed that there was a lot of work being done by individual faculty members in different departments on this topic of race and race making. And he convened kind of a, a loose meeting of all of us and asked us if we would be interested in working together in some sort of format. And luckily, I, I was very interested in this, and, and we seemed to work together well. And we're able to put together the faculty workshop in order to enhance our own production of knowledge in this area, but also benefit from the work of others in its beginning stages. And we can all go out and buy the um, groundbreaking books that our <laughs> colleagues are producing. But it seemed to have uh, or be beneficial to have access to the, the thinking process all the way along. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And uh, it occurred to us that if Indiana was going to have any major impact by bringing together all the scholars who are doing work on race, it shouldn't be limited just to ourselves, but we should reach out to graduate students and help them uh, know and have more access to the uh, first-rate research that's going on, but also to keep us honest and <laughs> make us asking tough questions. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how we began talking about this about two years ago, almost two years ago. Mm -hmm. We were able to put together the, the faculty workshop that's been going on, and our goal has always been to have work from different disciplines uh, really making interdisciplinarity mm -hmm. uh, at the forefront. And also um, then it gave rise to the graduate research seminar that Matt and I have been co-teaching for this past year. Uh -huh. okay. And then we also saw the, the conference as our opportunity to bring in work from scholars elsewhere uh -huh. to inform us and keep us... Uh, Honest, again, in terms of uh, – and, and bring a new, fresh perspective in terms of how race and our work on race is resonating with uh, other scholars in, in different locations. Uh -huh. Vivian, you used a phrase early in, in your comments, uh, race-making, and I didn't really know what that meant. I was hoping you'd define that for us. Yes. Um, that's one of the terms that uh, Professor Matt Guterl has uh, used prominently in his own writings. But the concept of it is that race – is constructed as much as it's uh, perceived by people. So when we when we theorize race and discuss race, we are in, in some ways making it, mm -hmm. constructing it at the very time that we're talking about it or, or breaking down the ways in which it's been constructed already. So any, any approach of it, any intellectual engagement with race makes race as much as it unmakes assumptions about race. Mm -hmm. Thank okay. you. John, could you explain how uh, you're involved in this and sort of the art aspect of it? Sure. Well, I'm a participant in the workshop. But uh, also, we were able to tie in the, the workshop and the conference with an exhibition that two of our students in the Department of the History of Art have uh, curated for the IU Art Museum. Um, I 
two of our students, uh, Matthew Backer and Jennifer Heusel, two years ago began doing research on an, an African-American artist, Elzir Kortor, whose career began sort of at the tail end of the Harlem Renaissance working in Chicago. And uh, he's 90 years old today and still making work. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long career. He's very well known among anybody who studies African-American art, but nobody knows very much about him. Everyone knows him for a handful of works. And so I was, I was really surprised to find two students in our department doing really in-depth, very good research on this little-known artist. So I got them together and said, hey, let's propose an exhibition for the IU Art Museum. And we went over and met with Nanette Brewer, who's the curator of works on paper over there. And she agreed to, to organize it with us. It's been a fantastic opportunity, both for the university to bring this um, widely known, but, uh, but not in-depth artist to IU. And uh, it's been a great opportunity for the students to learn about you know, what it takes to organize a museum exhibition. It's a far bigger task than anyone <laughs> understands oh, before doing it. Yeah. Uh, how, now, how would you describe his art? Is there any particular theme that runs through it? Well, the, both of the students were really interested in his um, paintings, in particular, of black female nudes. It's uh, a subject that um, you know, black women were not depicted in art in any way but really stereotypical ways until the tail end of the Harlem Renaissance. And Elzer Kortor is the, he's really the only African-American artist for the first half of the 20th century to really, um, to explore that subject in depth, to make a large number of paintings of black female nudes, and that's really what he became known for. They're, um, they're often hauntingly surreal sometimes set in uh, mystical southern settings that look like uh, dilapida uh, dilapidated plantations, sometimes set on the sea islands off the coast of the, the Carolinas, um, islands inhabited by islands that uh, sociologists thought in the early 20th century were the place where the most African of African-American cultures could be found, uh, which is why he was so interested in that subject. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're beautiful nudes. And they've often been considered very celebratory, but they were also controversial at the time um, because there was a lot of nervousness among, within the African-American community about presenting images of black women um, that are very sexual because stereotypes of black women often depicted them as you know, excessively sexual. Um, and uh, so these images were, you know, they're beautiful to our eyes today, but they were also very challenging at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Let me offer our, our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area, and the email is noon at indiana.edu. We're going to bring our third panelist uh, on board for this discussion. Andrew, um, you've been participating in the graduate seminar. Talk a little bit about uh, that and the kinds of topics you've been uh, discussing there. Well, I was um, a, one of the a, a graduate student who was working in his own department and was trying to, I was trying to kind of work out my ideas and see what the possibilities were for my um, research topic, which is focused on um, looking at bodies of water in the American South under segregation and looking at how African Americans were um, developing beaches and resort communities and sort of claiming access to and contesting um, access to bodies of water. And I was trying to kind of branch out and think of um, the possibilities for um, research in this topic and um, ways that I could kind of go outside of the kind of normal his historical perspective. And um, I was able to um, meet Matthew Guterrell and um, talk with him when this was still in its um, planning stages. And I thought that this would be a great opportunity for me to um, work out some of these ideas within a community of scholars. And um, so we've been focused in our research seminar, we've been focused on um, being able to share our, our work with um, fellow students and professors. And um, we spent the first half of the um, year, um, the fall semester, reading um, a lot of recent scholarship on race. So kind of looking at um, how the how these issues are being dealt with uh, in the scholarly community. And now we're, um, the, second, the spring semester, we are um, sharing our work in, with um, each other. And um, throughout, we've also been um, attending workshops with um, professors who are doing the same thing. So it's really kind of kind of broken down those traditional hierarchies between professors and um, graduate students and given us a chance to really um, explore the possibilities of our research and you know, receive criticism and, receive, and um, be able to kind of think about where we can take, the, um, take our own work and, how, and help others in developing ideas. So it's been really wonderful. 
Yeah, I'm fascinated by this multidiscipline approach to this. How many graduate students have been involved in the seminar, and what are some of the disciplines that they've all come from? There's, there's 12 graduate students in the seminar, and they come from many different departments. Um, I'm in the history department. Um, there's people in um, the history of art. Um, English, English, comparative mm-hmm. literature. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we have people in communications and cultures. Um, let's see. There's another historian. Mm-hmm. And uh, likewise, the members of the workshop come from the Department of, of Spanish and Portuguese, from Germanic studies, from... Um, uh, the history of art. Uh, we have one of the librarians who is the Latin American um, librarian for the Wells Library. We also have um, a scholar from IUPUI mm-hmm. who is in the anthropology department there. have um, people from the English department, uh, American studies, African-American and African diaspora studies. We really are coming at this from a variety of uh, sometimes unusual mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Affiliations, for example, our colleague in Germanic studies, Claudia Breger, uh, was a complete re- revelation to Matt and myself when we found out that she was doing work on blackness in Germany, mm-hmm. for example. So how could we not take the opportunity to learn more from mm-hmm. that? Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, I'm glad you explained that when you uh, when you <laughs> mentioned that. Like, okay, that's a stretch, but now it makes perfect sense. Yeah. How, how do you interact with? Uh, I guess what what. Some of us, the, a layman, would think is sort of the traditional areas of black study on campus, like the African American Studies Department. Well, they're co-sponsoring the mm-hmm. workshop and the seminar, along with the uh, let's see, Kahi, who is the Center for Arts and Humanities Institute, no, College Arts and Humanities Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, so, several of the faculty who are in African American and African Diaspora Studies are also participating in. Uh, the workshop, and some of the graduate students from the seminar are also pursuing master's degrees in African American and African Diaspora Studies. Okay. All right. 855-0811 in the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area, and noon at indiana.edu is our email address. Um, in the press release that I got that talked about this, the, the lead of the press release was sort of mentioned the movie Crash which uh, I have to admit I haven't seen. <laughs> but, it, you know, I know that the, I know enough about the movie to know that it really is about the sort of intersections of race relations in the U.S. And, and I, I just wondered about the relationship between that movie and what you're trying to do. Was that a stretch on the part of uh, the, the writer of the press release? Or? Well, let's call it a convenient coincidence <laughs> because there's no way we could have uh, predicted the crash would, would come along, win an Oscar, and then be um, – in the popular imagination or popular culture at the time that our conference was going to happen. But in some ways, I think it it does represent for people who are perhaps unfamiliar with the various disciplinary backgrounds and research projects of what the participants are doing, some aspect of how uh, race relations in the United States are not a clear-cut kind of problem. What we're trying to do in the uh, conference and in the seminar and in the workshop is look at the ways in which our paradigm for discussing race in the United States is not the sole or the predominant way of discussing race around the world. And so we're informing our understanding of race relations in the United States with a global perspective. For example, one of our uh, faculty presenters is looking at ways in which the Japanese are claiming blackness as an identity. Um, and he's from anthropology, so it is uh, sterling Marvin Sterling. So, again, that's really informing our understanding and challenging our easy assumptions about what race is, means, and does in the United Uh States. Uh Okay. Okay. Here's an email that just came in. Uh, when Coach Sampson was hired as IU's new football or basketball coach, a question that immediately came to mind was, what race is he? Nobody said or would say as far as I could tell. Then I got an email from a friend in Kentucky who asked the same question. So I researched it and found an article from the NCAA Final Four when Indiana played Oklahoma. Sampson is, is it Lumbee Indian? I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, I don't know the correct pronunciation. My apologies. Uh, The article said, why hasn't this been mentioned? Or if it has, is it important to know or not to know? I would prefer my name not to be used. Uh, There you go. Well, let me answer the first question. It was on the front page of our paper today. Today. (laughs) So the second question, you know, is that important? I think think, uh, 
this the silence about the issue until until your paper today points to the fact uh, points to the way in which maybe it is important. Um, I think on this campus this year, with the whole discussion about uh, President Herbert, um, the debate about whether or not Mike Davis should resign or should be fired, I think uh, race has been an, a quiet undercurrent. That um, hasn't always been at the forefront of the debate, and and I think it's really fascinating that uh, that that topic didn't come up until now. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's the suggestion that if a um, coach had been selected who was white to all um, visual appearance, would anybody care about his ethnicity, for example? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I. What I would say is that the issue of self-definition is is pretty important, and although obviously the front page of the Herald Times today addressed the issue of race, which uh, it seems to have been troubling a lot of people, I would, and I didn't read the whole article, so I That's can't okay. comment to it, <laughs> but I, I would hope that there's some space in which um, the coach himself identifies, and I, I gathered from what I did read of the article that he has a link in his personal web page to uh, inform more people about the customs of this particular tribe. Right. And I think another interesting point about this, and I guess I'll toss this out and see if it is relevant, is he is a member of the Black Coaches Association, which is one of the things that sort of confuses people about the racial identity. Uh, people look at him and see that he's he doesn't look white. They don't know for sure what to think, and then they see, oh, he. Well, he must be African-American. He's in the Black Coaches Association, but I don't know. It's just a... Well, what do you... Uh, yeah, I think the, the question is, uh, what do you learn from someone when they tell you what their race is? I mean, yeah. it, mm-hmm. and, and it, you know, is it what you're bringing into that or is, is it, you know, actually knowing that, is that actual information or, or is it just what you attach to that information mm-hmm. that you bring yeah. to the equation? So, it, yeah. it, but, it, but it was a question and I was kind of surprised at... at Every, people were just kind of puzzled, and, and but yet felt a strong need to know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of how we—I don't know. I guess we we order each other and ourselves in certain ways, and that's that's certainly one way of doing it. Yes, yes. It'd be nice if everyone who wondered what uh, what his ethnicity was then wondered when they couldn't figure it out why they were wondering. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's a part of scholarship. Yeah. You know? there are questions, yeah. and we need to know why. Yeah, and it brings to the forefront the issue of, of race not being immediately or, or natural, naturally coded in the body necessarily. Um, and goes to challenge, again, our notions that people should be easy to categorize in this age of, of uh, biracial movements of, to bring awareness that you don't have to claim one uh, position or the other, but you can claim heritages from multiple, uh, from part of your multiple background. Mm-hmm. So, um, Yeah, let me take a, another sort of, line from um, the announcement about the conference. It talks about how presenters will address the circumstances behind the various meanings of blackness in different cultural contexts. Can you expand on that? Well, certainly I don't want to monopolize the, the Q&A, but... Well, all, all three of you can talk okay. about um, Well, for example, let's look at, at uh, Professor Jaffet, who is going to speak on blackness in an Indian context and, and talking about the, the untouchables as a case. Um, that would be an instance in which blackness is used as a signifier that does not come coded with, for, for one thing, the legacy of slavery that it would have in the United States. And for another, it has other issues about the, the suitability, I mean, the permanence of, of being described through color in a way that it doesn't translate into an American context. Mm-hmm. Andrew, you want to talk about some other issues? Um, well, I would, I would just say that... Um I think in my own work and in, in, in sharing my work and um, learning from other scholars' work, it's really kind of helped me think about um, different ways I can kind of critique understandings of um, identity and African-American culture and looking at how um, really you need to in- inject um, and look and cr- critically analyze the role of class and gender in particular in my work. Um, mm-hmm. And just looking at it and looking at it, especially when I think back on um, – Japanese Americans and Japanese culture. I mean, just looking at the ways in which um, notions of blackness have really percolated in many different ways throughout society and um, have really kind of traveled in very murky channels and um, and bringing that kind of to the surface has been one of the main goals of this um, conference and of the year-long project. And it's really been fascinating the different ways that we've um, kind of explored this. Mm-hmm. Why, why is this issue so hard to talk, for many people to talk about, the issue of race? I think a lot. I find in my classes, um, 
at the be- uh, when I teach African American art, students are often reluctant to speak up at the beginning of the semester, mm-hmm. and they open up much more by the end of the semester because I think they're uncomfortable sometimes with um, they're nervous about people thinking they've said the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're nervous that they don't have the vocabulary, the proper vocabulary, to talk about the issue, you know, in terms of. And I think it takes people a while to realize that, uh, you know, in American popular culture, we talk about race all the time, even sometimes when we don't realize we are. And mm-hmm. so we all have that vocabulary, but there's uh, we have to get past a certain kind of nervousness, um, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to open up, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, I think... Uh, we're a nation of immigrants, and when people immigrate to this country, they're oftentimes very surprised to see how they're racially coded in ways in which it's unfamiliar to them. For example, this has uh, drawn a lot of attention in the case of, of Brazilian immigrants to the United States who consider themselves white and are suddenly seen as black. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, uh, in England, uh, black refers not just to Afro-Caribbean immigrants or African immigrants, but it's a term applied also to Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi immigrants. And so black British as a, as a designator is a broader term and understanding than we bring to it here. And oftentimes, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican myself, and the response I get when people ask me where I'm from is, you don't look Puerto Rican. So they have a certain <laughs> yeah. set of assumptions about racially what an ethnicity or a national identity means. And, you know, their concern is, well, am I going to be offended by that as a reaction? Right. And I think it opens up the, the door to communication and talk about expectations yeah. and how we, how we deal with one another's difference. Right. Have you ever said, so now that you know I'm of Puerto Rican heritage, what does that mean to you? Well, it depends. Or how, you know, how does that change? I, I, I don't know. It's, just, it's really an interesting yeah, um, exchange. I don't know because it also raises the race is also coded uh, beyond skin color, right? Mm-hmm. So then my accent becomes a, a question. It's like, well, you don't sound Puerto Rican. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> I don't quite know. I try to be polite. <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I keep pursuing this. Oh, have you been to Puerto Rico? Mm-hmm. You know, so. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. We're uh, about at break time, so I think we'll just take a break, uh, sort of regather ourselves and go with the second half of the program. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. Each year, WFIU sponsors an art contest for children in grades one through five. This year's theme is Helping Others in Need. Winning artwork will be featured in WFIU's monthly program guide, Directions and Sound. In addition, a donation will be made in the winner's name to the charity of their choosing. Deadline for the entry is Monday, April 3rd. Information about entering this year's WFIU art contest is available on our website at wfiu.indiana.edu. WFIU will be collecting books for the Red Cross's annual book sale, and you can drop off your donation of books, DVDs, VHS tapes, and music in front of Borders Books and Music in Eastland Plaza on Saturday, April 8th from 9 a.m. to noon. More information about this, many other events, opportunities, and so on, on our website at wfiu.indiana.edu. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. We're talking about uh, variations in blackness. It's a conference that's going on at Indiana University, and we have three guests with us today. Vivian Halloran is a professor in the IU Department of Comparative Literature and a co-organizer of the conference. John Bowles is assistant professor of 20th century American art and African-American art 
in the Department of, of the History of Art and the American Studies Program at Indiana University. And Andrew Caro is a PhD candidate in history at Indiana University, and his dissertation topic is on an area uh, involving race. So uh, we're, if you want to join us on the program, and we do have one caller we're going to get to in a minute, you can phone us at 855-0811. Or 877-285-9348 if you're outside of the Bloomington area, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. So let's uh, go to Stan on the phone. Stan? Hi. I'd like to uh, make a comment about uh, blackness as opposed to um, merit. Uh, as an American, it seems to me what is best about our country is is the fact that you can rise on merit. I... Uh, spent a career in an old line federal agency, and the um, man who hired me um, was a black man who came from a a very forward, a very progressive bureau of that agency. He rose to be a super grade, and I worked under him for some 12 years, and he taught me what it meant to manage, how to get people to yes. Mm-hmm. And he had um, a shaky education. He was raised by by an aunt uh, in Philadelphia, but he overcame a great deal of ingrained assumptions about his inferiority simply because he, in his case, he happened to be a gifted, uh, intelligent man who, in his seventies now, is an artist. But he he forced people to accept him, if I can put it that way on the basis of his ability to get things done with an essentially white staff and dealing with white clients, some of whom were agency people in the South. So I would like like to stress that from my observation, he accomplished uh, acceptance, or, or, or I should say respect, based on his hard work. And race, in his case, was a cultural matter that was to one side. That's really all I I wanted to say. All right, Stan, reaction? Well, uh, I think certainly stereotypes regarding race and performance or merit or ability are, are among the things that we're trying to, to question and challenge in both the conference, the, the workshop, and the, and the seminar. They are there. But we're trying to look at the ways in which even positive uh, constructions of race reframe these very same assumptions uh, so that I'm glad to hear the success of, of this person's of, of Stan's uh, supervisor. And uh, it would certainly not downplay the fact that he had to constantly face this, these assumptions regardless of his merit. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have a couple more calls. Let's go next to Velma. Velma? Hi. Um, I just turned on your program just a little bit ago, and it brought back memories to me of going to college in the South, a very conservative college between 1958 and 1962. And I'm pure Cuban. And I remember t- telling this sweet young freshman, uh, you know, she, we were both freshmen, that I was Cuban descent. And she said, oh, well, now I thought, well, Cubans were black. Now, this was at a time when uh, there were still segregated bathrooms, and at this college there were no blacks. And uh, I don't know what uh, possessed me to do it, but I decided to use humor. And I said to her, well, no, uh, some Cubans are black, but uh, the one thing that's different is Cubans have black toenails. (laughs) For the longest time, she, you know, she's, she's... gets a very startled look on her face and says, well, of course, she was ready to bonk me in the head when she found out it wasn't true. But um, I I don't know why, but I've always had a sense of using humor uh, to to just, you know, to level the playing field. Uh, Like telling one fellow I was dating, he asked me, he said, well, uh, what's different about being Cuban? Well, I told him, um, the language is different, and actually the dogs even, rather than going, arf, arf, the dogs go, grafita, grafita. <laughs> and I made the mistake of telling my mother and both of us howling right in front of him, so he didn't appreciate that. <laughs> but um, I guess 
uh, I guess all of us, whatever our, our ethnic heritage, have at times gone to humor to handle something that's really a very serious, you know, reality of uh, knowing that someone is looking at you differently. Mm-hmm. That's all I wanted to share. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot for the call. Any reaction to that? Any, I mean, have there been studies in terms of, of, you know, race and humor? I assume there have been. I don't know in the terms of mm-hmm. what she was talking about. but I think uh, there probably have, but I don't know of any that I can report. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. But it's certainly, I, I, I would have to say that I'd prefer any kind of attempt to grapple with the situation and the uncertainty rather than the silence that we tend to get in classrooms right. uh, because at least there's the effort to achieve greater understanding. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think there's a way in which a lot of artists use humor when they deal with mm-hmm. race in their artwork. And, and uh, it's often humor that, that you laugh with at first and then you start, it makes you start to wonder why you laughed or why you find a certain situation funny. And so laughter, I think, uh, for example, in the IU Art Museum, there's that fantastic painting by Robert Colescott, Lightning Lipstick, that is full of humor. It's, you know, it's one joke after another, all within one painting. Um, but it's uh, all those jokes in the painting make you, start to, make you stop and think. The, the jokes kind of they get your guard down. Um, so that you can start wondering about how, what it means to call oneself black or mm-hmm. what it means to call oneself Latino instead or what it means to call oneself you know, white or octoroon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a way in which humor can really access our kind of deepest fears, which I think is what the caller was referring to in a mm-hmm. sense with that joke about black toenails when her, her friend was <laughs> terrified. <laughs> in a way, I, think. I, I, would, I would add, though, that I mean, humor can have a double, be a double-edged sword. I think um, the recent example from popular culture with um, Dave Chappelle mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. how he kind of became uncomfortable with how funny white people thought his, his form of humor was. And um, he, I recall an interview in which he cited an example in which he was... Um, he saw a person in the audience, a, a white person in his audience, who was laughing a little too much at um, one of his jokes and in a way that made him kind of unnerved him in a way that um, made him kind of reflect on um, the impact of his forms of humor and his way of kind of bringing race to the surface could at the same time sort of reify some of the stereotypes of um, African-American males in society. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely humor um, has a kind of a, can be a tricky subject yeah. to deal with. Yeah. And one There's that, a long legacy of ethnic jokes yeah, sure, and of racial yeah, jokes sure. that is, we don't want to validate. No, no, but right. at least using humor in some way to grapple with, with the impasse and the embarrassment that you might feel when voicing these very questions, because we want people to find out more about each other, we don't want them not to ask questions. Right. We may just not be comfortable with the kinds of questions that are being asked immediately. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, 855-0811-877-285-9348, and noon at indiana.edu. Our next call is from Gracie. Gracie? Yes. Um, I think that um, humor is used as a weapon a lot now, too. Um, just it's been turned the opposite way a little bit, but you know, oh, I pulled a gun on you, and it's because, you know, you're mad at me, it's because you're a racist, you know, whichever way that goes, you know, whether you're black, white, or purple. Uh, but um, that's the way it always goes with humor. Humor always is a weapon. Mm-hmm. But what I'm most interested in is that um, I think that culture is a lot harder to study and that studying race is kind of an easier way to go. So I'd like to hear something about that. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Well, I I think you'd be hard-pressed to separate the two in some ways. Uh, For example, last night's opening event for the conference highlighted the the relationship between art, uh, painting, dance, and uh, scholarship. So we had a lecture on the work of of Elzir Kortor by... Edmund Berrigather. Edmund Berrigather, in which he showed some slides of the work that, that has built Cortor's reputation. Then we walked over to the museum and saw a performance choreographed by Iris Rosa, a faculty member in African-American and African diaspora studies that was inspired by the work of Cortor that's being shown uh, at the exhibition. So in all three events fed on each other and they all together produce a larger awareness of culture, of race, of art and movement and the body than any one individual Mm -hmm. part of those three events would have. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that's been so useful about the the workshop, for me at least, is to see how many different ways there are of studying the issue of race through looking at different kinds of culture. 
and not just looking at different cultures, but looking at different, you know, looking at film, looking at the mm. news media, looking at art, you know, popular culture and high culture. It's, uh, right. You know, we haven't talked a lot about the details of the, the conference and the events. Are there other events that are open to the public? Pretty much all the, the lectures are open to the public. If uh, people feel that they would like to see more of the dance performance that we had a little taste of yesterday, um, there is a concert, uh, the spring concert of the African American Dance Company, of which three uh, members were featured in the uh, performance last night. That will take place on Saturday, April 1st at the Buskirk Chumley Theater. And I would like to point out that we have more panels that take place at the Dogwood Room in the IMU this afternoon. There's one beginning at 2 on queer identities. There's another one at 4 on race and caste. And uh, tomorrow all day, we have mixture and hybridity uh, beginning at 8.30, the black aesthetic at 10.30. And we have uh, a keynote lecture on... Middle Passages, African-American Journeys to Africa. So this reverses the, the trend of, of movement from Africa to the United States, looking at the other way around, African-Americans traveling to Africa. Then we have a, another panel at 2 tomorrow, Blackness in a Transnational and Comparative Context. And then we end with a uh, dialogue that I will have with Ivy Wilson from Notre Dame on Haiti and the revolutionary black body. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, people should feel free to come. There's no charge. Just check in so people can tell you where the dogwood room is at the <laughs> union. But we would like to invite the broader member of uh, the Bloomington community as well as anyone in the university who is interested in this topic to come see what kind of scholarship. It's unpredictable. All the panels have different specialties and people from different disciplines mm-hmm. contributing to this larger dialogue. Right. Okay. Eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and noon at indiana dot edu. We have about fifteen minutes left in the program, so uh, give us a call or send us an email. Um, one of the presentations that I read about James Campbell, mm-hmm. associate professor in American Civilization, Africana Studies, and his and history at Brown University, mm-hmm. and the the topic, uh, and it seems like it's very relevant to everything you've been saying, but his presentation will focus on what it means. When everyone assumes they are alike, though they really are not, which uh, it just seems like an interesting topic. Could you expand and, and sort of comment on you know what he's going to talk about? Hmm. So what do we want to take again? Yeah, well, I guess we haven't heard the talk yet. So yeah, we right. Know exactly sure. what yeah. he's talking about. <laughs> but, but I mean, this, but, this this sort of notion that you know, when everybody assumes you're alike, but you really are not. Well, alike. looking at the trope of African Americans returning to an imaginary homeland, really, because Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, these people who travel are, are claiming a diasporic identity. Mm-hmm. They're they stressing the African part of the African-American identity, mm-hmm. and therefore they feel an emotional and uh, historical connection to the continent of Africa, but no, not necessarily to a specific area. Uh, and when they return, they receive mixed uh, signals from the people around them. If they come to a specifically diasporic festival in which the, the call has been made out to the world to have all the people who have been dispersed, then they're likely to be seen as, as returning brothers or sisters. If they just come on their own or come to specific parts of Africa that are going about their business, uh, oftentimes they s- report feelings of, of surprise and not being recognized as being fellow Africans, their Africanness not being affirmed. And on the part of the African uh, peoples who convey this response, they see that there's been a break and and they see that uh, there's a long history of these travelers being forming American identities or European identities or Jamaican identities. And this is a topic that has um, fueled at least two PBS documentaries (laughs) by um, Skip Gates, so Henry Louis Gates Jr., and his most recent one having to do with, you know, doing DNA uh, analyses and figuring out what part of, mm. of Africa uh, genetically people are traced to. And he has himself gone on these journeys and confronted people and said, why don't you see me as a brother? Uh, and people say, well, because you're American. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, uh-huh. we lost you when, when, when the Middle Passage took place. So there's various different levels. There's also traditions of African-American intellectuals 
writing and keeping journals of their travels to Africa. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure which of the many ones <laughs> manifestations <laughs> Professor Campbell will, will tackle. Sure. But it's that whole notion of an expectation of, of welcoming mm-hmm. and uh, the whole diasporic web perhaps not being as fully anchored on a real place at a real time mm-hmm. in the, in mm-hmm. the 21st century as it may be more in the imagination or the heart. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, obviously, we're, you know, we're, we're all students. We're all ongoing, you know, continuing students. But Andrew is a student in name, <laughs> you know, a graduate student. Um, and, and I want to ask you about, you know, your relationship with the other 11 in your graduate seminar and some of the things that maybe surprised you that you've learned from, you know, there. Maybe you can pick one or two out of things that you've learned that have just fascinated you. Well, I was, um, when Vivian was just speaking, I was thinking of um, our a conversation that we were having in class a couple of days ago in which um, one of our my fellow classmates is doing a project on Afrocentrism and how it was um, being imagined and um, being disseminated through um, hip-hop lyrics and hip-hop artists in New York City in the 1980s. And I think getting back to that notion of um, the diaspora is not just simply a um, process, a physical movement, but also something that's being imagined and being um, reconjured in different um, settings and forms is something that's really fascinating. Um, but and, and I think just being able to um, kind of learn from fellow students and um, and also kind of the different disciplinary perspectives and kind of blurring those lines has been um, really fascinating. Um, I know we have another another one of my students, another one of my fellow classmates is um, working on looking at um, um, notions of miscegenation and um, art and um, really in, in literature. And so kind of breaking, looking at um, how these ideas are being, um, how um, kind of ideas of race are being um, projected and um, through art and um, looking at the connections to literature, I think, has really been fascinating. Just kind of coming from a background as an historian, just being able to think of new ways that I, that can inform my work has um, really been an amazing experience. How, Andrew, how did you get interested in this? Interested in the seminar? No, just in the in the whole study of race. Well, it's, um, I mean, I I guess I'm I come from a, a rural background. I'm grew up in a small town in Ohio, and um, I mean, being a young white male myself, I think I was really struck growing up by the kind of the silence of race, the erasure of it um, in people's daily lives, and um, just being able to think about ways to um, kind of bring that to the surface, and um, not only in my own research, and, and kind of that sort of, that silence that I was surrounded with, that kind of deafening silence um, growing up, has kind of compelled me to think about um, ways in which not not just why I gravitated towards these subjects, but also how I can kind of bring that out um, as a, um, an aspiring professor someday in, in my own classes, and um, kind of how that informs, um, I guess, my own research. And it's something that I'm kind of always wrestling with and something that um, I can st- certainly through um, kind of seminars and other um, conferences like this be able to kind of not just reflect on my own position within the scholarly community, but um, how I can kind of benefit and contribute to that. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. We have a phone call from Wendy. Wendy? Hi. Um, I wanted to extend an invitation to everybody to a School of Fine Arts Gallery exhibit that opens tonight from 7 to 9. Noel Anderson is a black printmaking graduate student whose work looks at his one of his many perspectives on blackness so i would really like everybody to come to that and i did want to say that i enjoyed the opening events yesterday of the conference and i hope that this effort and many more will engage more and more black people in this discussion that's a good point, Wendy. Uh-huh. Okay, Wendy, thanks. thanks. Thank you. Yeah, in fact, we've been criticized on this show before when we've had these topics and, and we don't have an African-American uh, as, as part of our panel. And what respond to that. I mean, this is it is it okay to or, or are we less legitimate uh, in our discussion without an African-American present in the discussion of this topic? That's a, that's a really good question, and I, I'll just, um, if I can answer it in a very personal way, I found, I became interested in the study of race by looking at the work of an, of an African-American artist who, uh, I found her work very challenging because it really addressed the matter of race in a way uh, that made it pertinent to me as someone who thought of, I had always thought of myself as white. Um, and, you know, it asked, uh, this artist's work asks questions of race as, um, 
really is more than just matters of genetics or parentage, but as moral questions. Um, if if uh, geneticists say that most Americans have at least some African ancestry, you know, what does it mean to call yourself white? Are you claiming some kind of privilege mm -hmm. uh, by refusing to, you know, explore your past, explore your genealogy in ways that, you know, you'll never find recorded to find out whether you're really, you know, purely white, whatever that might mean. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there is also this other question of, uh, uh, of inclusion and representation and, and broadening the discussion. And uh, that's something I think the workshop addresses and that the conference will well addressed as well. Actually, um, just in the first panel this morning, one of our speakers talked about um, his title was The Paratext of Blackness, The Problem of Judging a Book by Its Author's Skin. And the issue he raised was when anthologizing works by African-American writers, oftentimes their works of fiction that do not address the issue of race mm -hmm. don't show up represented in these anthologies. So is there an expectation that African-American writers can only write about the African-American experience or not? And what happens when, through choices of editors who are putting together these anthologies, that's the message that's reinforced? Now, I don't want to, uh, you know, completely do his own talk here <laughs> or take credit for that idea, but uh, in some ways, the, the fact that we're all doing work on race mm -hmm. um, in itself brings about the question of, well, if we were all doing work on Victorian fiction, if we were 21st century professors, should we only let the people who were alive at that time speak? Well, it would be a little hard. So um, it doesn't delegitimize, I think, our interest in the, in the topic. There is a, a large number of African-American and Afro-Caribbean and African participation in the workshop and the conference, as well as in the seminar. But it raises the issue if we just select who's coming based on race, mm -hmm. isn't that tokenism as well? And we, we want to complicate these, these assumptions. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, Vivian, one of your uh, hopes and desires is to sort of position Indiana University as a national leader in, in the study of race. Um, you know, how, what's your vision? What would you like to see five years down the road? If, if you got what you wanted uh, <laughs> out of this, how would IU progress? What would, the, what would this study of race look like on this campus? Well, that's a that's a good question. For one thing, I don't think it'd be limited just to black and white, again, as, as the paradigm, because we don't mm -hmm. want to duplicate the very problem that we see. Um, it would definitely have a global component. And one of the manifestations, the other end stage that we're hoping to put together as a result of this year-long process and the conference would be an anthology of, of uh, new work produced by the faculty, maybe some by the graduate students and some of the conference participants that would forecast a way in which we want to discuss this issue of race-making and how you construct race as well as how you retell or recast lived experiences about inhabiting a racialized body. So I would hope that um, based on the success and enthusiasm that we've had so far, that perhaps we could have a um, series of meetings or a continuation of the graduate seminar in different guises. I know, for example, that American Studies is recontextualizing its definition of what American means to include a, a transnational perspective, North America, South America, and the Caribbean. And so I would like to follow along those lines and, and put race at the forefront, maybe have another workshop in a couple of years mm -hmm. with not blackness but variations on some other type of <laughs> biraciality or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, again, because we continue to have, we could not have everybody who either applied for the workshop represented or people who were on leave or whose own work is so uh, cutting edge that they want to keep doing it instead mm -hmm. of rethinking of something new. So we'd like to continue to um, attract high-caliber graduates since like Andrew, <laughs> uh -huh. and uh, to, to challenge our assumptions and to keep us looking at the issue of race mm -hmm. fresh and to really kind of build on the work that we've been doing with the arts, with um, the different disciplines, and maybe incorporate some scientific element. Who knows? You never uh -huh. know. <laughs> right. I mean, I, could, go ahead. I was just going to say one thing that's been good about the, the workshop and the seminar is that Matt and Vivian have brought us together and really you know, brought us all from our different departments where sometimes mm -hmm. we work very much alone on a campus of this size and created a real energy. And I think there's a lot, that energy can be very productive in terms of not just place, creating a kind of 
preeminence uh, upon Indiana University, but it, it also has been really fruitful, I think, in encouraging us to, uh, to think more broadly and collaboratively in mm -hmm. some cases. Yeah, and it's that kind of energy of which will continue to attract students here to IU um, for graduate work. And I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I started here as a graduate student kind of alone in my own department, but now I really feel like I'm part of um, kind of a larger community that is focused on these issues that I'm interested in, which I came here interested in. Um, so I think that that's a way to kind of continually grow and expand this and give it life to have IU known as a place where people who are interested in these sorts of issues can find a home. Uh -huh. Now, I'm always sort of looking for the, uh, I guess, the end game. I mean, the, the, uh -huh. the seminar concept I could certainly, you know, wrap my arms around, but would would you see a, a, a case down the road where there were, were a series of courses or a, an actual path of coursework that would lead to a particular degree or um, certi certificate, certification or something? You know, I would hate to speak for Matt Guterell, who we've been <laughs> mentioning, and he's dutifully, you know, keeping the, the helm at the conference. So uh, that I would have to talk with my co-director yeah. Well, I'm just um, asking your opinion. Yeah. You know, nothing, you know. It'd be hard to binding. situate, yeah. to, to be fair, unless we create yet another Institute for Race Studies or some, some larger body that's inherently interdisciplinary, because yeah. right now it would have to be located or housed within one mm -hmm. of the many disciplines. So I, I put a little plug for Matt's yeah. other project, which is American Studies. But I know international studies uh, would be another likely place for you know, for us to draw students mm -hmm. in comparative literature. Why not? As sure. long as I'm plugging departments right. <laughs> that do, does inter inherently interdisciplinary work. So. Right. And I think the direction of um, people who are working on their dissertations, these, I mean, as evidenced by the people in this seminar, they're mm -hmm. getting their PhDs in departments, but their work is so interdisciplinary mm -hmm. that, I mean, and there's no tension in that. I mean, I think that right. I, I can work towards a PhD in history, but be able to really incorporate many elements um, outside of the traditional boundaries. And I think that we're kind of questioning how, what, why those boundaries are there in the first place. Right. Your work will be better. For oh, the effort, yeah. Absolutely. All right, all right let's yeah. just keep it multidisciplinary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off for that. All right, and we, we are out of time. Uh, the name of the conference is Variations on Blackness, and there are plenty of public events that you could go to this weekend. Uh, thank you to our guests, Vivian Halloran, John Bowles, and Andrew Carl, for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Nicole Brooks, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.